The grass withers, the flower fades. But the word of our God stands forever. The word of God, which also performs its work in you who believe. Blessed are those who hear the word of God and observe it. We are here this morning studying the word of God. We are studying in Romans. We are doing our review of the book of Romans. Romans chapter 12 is where we are. We went over verses 1 and 2 on Wednesday night and then made our way into the next section, verses 3 through 8. But we didn't finish it, so we're going to go back and pick up there in Romans 12, 3 through 8 and look at quickly, go through what we looked at on Wednesday night and then move on from there. Before we do any of it, let's take a moment for silent prayer. We do need to ensure that our heart is ready, prepared for the study of the Word of God, confessing sins if needed, and also humbling ourselves so that we might be teachable, shall we pray. Most gracious and merciful and loving Heavenly Father, we thank you for the blessing of being able to gather here at the church this morning. We often can take this for granted as something that is going to happen every single Sunday morning, but it's not a given. You provided grace blessings all along the way so that we might be able to do this, and we're thankful for that. And we're thankful for the fellowship that we have one with another, fellowship that we have with you. We're thankful for this opportunity to consider the truth of your word, and we ask that you would help each and every one of us to focus our attention on what it is that you're trying to teach us this morning so that we might grow in our faith and become closer to you and to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, as we're being conformed to his image. We pray all of these things in his most precious and beautiful name. Amen. All right. Well, we'll go, we're going to be, do a review of our review this is where we got to last time, verses 3 through 8 of chapter 12. For through the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think, but to think so as to use sound judgment, as God has allotted to each believer a measure of faith. For just as we have many members in one body, and all the members do not have the same active function in the same way, we who are many are one body in Christ and individually members one of another." You notice that phrase, the same active function, that's going to become important in the next section. This is, this is translated very verbosely, but that was done on purpose because this is, this is exactly what Paul is saying here in these verses. He says, since we have spiritual gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, each gifted believer should actively function accordingly. If one has the spiritual gift of prophecy, he should actively use that gift according to the proportion of his faith. If one has the spiritual gift of service, he should actively use that gift in serving others. If one is a gifted teacher, he should actively use his gift in teaching others. If one is a gifted exhorter, he should actively use his gift in exhorting others. If one is a gifted giver, he should actively use his gift in generosity toward others. If one is a gifted leader, he should actively use his gift with diligence. If one is a gifted shower of mercy, he should actively use his gift with a heart of gladness. Now, that's a very verbose translation, but that really captures the gist of what Paul is saying. Now, we're going to review our review here without going and looking at the the verses in the process of doing this because we covered that on Wednesday night. Uh, Paul warns against the sin of arrogance multiple times in the book of Romans. We see that in 
uh, Romans 11:20 in the section on uh, Israel, and then here in t- verse 3, and then also coming up in verse 16 of chapter 12, a warning about arrogance. Uh, it's a that's a real problem in the Christian faith. It's a problem uh, that I'm going to talk a little bit about next hour. It's a problem when we uh, get get full of ourselves. As a, as our mind is being renewed, we develop the capacity to utilize sound judgment in evaluating ourselves and others. And I spent some time on Wednesday night talking about that. That often we can be extremely uh, extremely good at evaluating others. We can figure out the um, problems that other believers have and we can uh we can come up with all sorts of things that they they need to do and I, and I joked about how my next oldest brother likes to say let me tell you what you need to do and that's what he does he says that a lot he's he's kind of making a funny when he does that but but he's that kind of personality he'll say let me tell you what you need to do because I can tell you you know and unfortunately as believers we do that we can see the faults in others and we can say boy they need to really study this they need to look at this they need to look at that And in reality, we need to be able to look in the mirror and see that individual in the mirror and going, man, you need to study this. You need to study that because uh, we're growing in the faith and so are the other people. And that's why Jesus had that conversation about the splinter in the log. We notice the splinter in somebody else's eye, but we don't notice the log in our own. The resulting humility, which comes from if you you are able to utilize sound, sound judgment in evaluating yourself, you will become humble because you'll recognize all your all your faults. The more you understand the scripture and you, you understand the absolutely infinitely perfect righteousness of God, you'll recognize, man, I fall really short of that. I'm not even close. And so you will become humble as a result of that. Uh, the resulting humility then will reflect grace orientation. And we spent a number of, of uh, minutes looking at the idea of grace orientation 1 Corinthians uh, 4, 6 through 7, and 1 Corinthians 15, 10. And it, and it imitates Christ because in Philippians 2, 3 through 8, we see how he humbled himself, right? He humbled himself. That's part of that. That passage in Philippians 2 is one of the passages that we think of as the kenosis passage. That's where he set aside his privileges. And Christ, uh, if, he, if he, coming at the first advent, if he could humble himself and come as a humble servant for the first advent, uh, then I think it's not really too much to ask for us to humble ourselves. The human body is a great illustration of the way individual unique believers are united in the body of Christ. We looked at a number of passages, Ephesians 4.16, Ephesians 4.25, Ephesians 5.30, Colossians 1.24, and Colossians 2.19. The idea is you have so many different elements to your body, and they all function in a different way and do different things, and that's how it's designed to be, but yet it's one body. It's one body. It's, it's unified in the sense that it's all your, your body that you dwell in, but yet it has lots of different parts, and they all function in different ways, and that's exactly how the body of Christ works. Everybody, as I mentioned on uh, Wednesday night, if I look around the room, everybody in this room is different, everybody. And, and I would say, you know, if I were, in, and I'm serious when I say this, you know, I know all of you pretty well, and if I were to put each of you into categories, there would be uh, the exact same number of categories as there are people because no two, no two of you are alike. There may be similarities, but no two of you are alike. You are all different, and yet we all come together as part of the body of Christ. And that doesn't just include this congregation. That includes all the believers in the world. It is the baptism of the Spirit which has united these many believers, each one with a unique function, into one body, 
1 Corinthians 12, 12 through 27. Uh, the baptism of the Spirit, like I said, it's one baptism. The Bible makes that clear, one baptism. But that one baptism not only baptizes us into the body of Christ, but it also baptizes us into Christ. We are baptized into Christ. We're baptized into the body. And the cool thing about it, and I, I don't know how much time you give to thinking about this, but it's something that I think is a pretty precious thing about our faith, is that I have been through God's doing, through the baptism of the Spirit, through what he has done, I have been connected with you for all of eternity. We are connected for all of eternity. And we are not going to be, by the way, we're not going to be connected to each other in the same way that we're connected to, like, for example, Old Testament saints. Now, Old Testament saints, they're believers, right? They're believers, and and we have a connection with them in the sense that they're also those who have believed God's word and his promises and so on and so forth. But I have a unique connection with you as being part of the body of Christ, as being part of the church. That's something we need to recognize. The church is going to be unique and distinct for all of eternity. We're going to be connected to each other as as part of a body of believers for all of eternity, and it's going to be unique in God's plan and program. Pretty special. Spiritual gifts are given by the Holy Spirit. Open doors for ministry come through Jesus Christ, and the effectiveness of ministry is provided by God the Father. 1 Corinthians 12, 4 through 7. Neat passage. It talks about the Trinity. It's one of those where you can find the Trinity all in one section in a few verses. And it talks about the various, um, the various uh, effectiveness, the various functions, if you will, of the, the members of the Trinity. The gifts are given to us by the Spirit. That's why we call them spiritual gifts in one way, but spiritual gifts because they are part of our spiritual life, right? But they also come from the Holy Spirit. Spiritual gifts come from the Holy Spirit, open doors for ministry through Jesus Christ. He's the head of the church. It only makes sense. If we're going, if who, who's the leader of the church? The leader of the church, capital C, is Jesus Christ. So when doors for ministry are opened, it comes through him. He's the one who opens doors for ministry. And then it says in verse 6 of 1 Corinthians 12 that the effectiveness of the ministry is provided by the Father. So all three members of the Trinity are at work in us. I think that's pretty cool <laughs> so, to imagine how God is involved in, in that way. Spiritual gifts have differing functions, yet the same design and purpose. They are given so that we might serve one another. That's the thing you really need to remember. I, I have a, My giftedness was not given to me so that I would exalt myself. Uh, your giftedness was not given to you so that you would exalt yourself. Your giftedness was given to you so that you might serve others with your gift. And by the way, this is true. What I'm telling you here is is specifically true regarding spiritual gifts. But I would also extend that to everything that you've been given. All the all the blessings that you've been given, your talents, your, you know, your your position in life and everything that's been given to you. All of that has been given to you by God so that you might serve others with it, not that you might exalt yourself. Very important concept. Uh, there was, I wish I could remember the exact wording of it, but when we, when we were at a concert on Friday night, we went to see the Gatlin brothers, and when we were there, one of the things they saw, were singing was this song about how fair winds have been blowing all my life. I mean, basically the idea that, he, that that's a way of saying without, you know, in a poetic, I guess, way of saying, I've been blessed. God has blessed me. You know, I've had fair winds blowing. And one of the lines I thought was pretty cool was, that if it's the fair winds have filled up my sails to as much as they can handle. That's basically basically pointing out that, you know, each one of us can only handle so much, right? And God gives us 
the amount that we can handle. It was really cool. But do we recognize that when we think about what God has done for us? Do we realize where the, you know, if you think about it, for example, uh, you know, I had parents that instilled in me a work ethic. Well, that was a grace gift from God that I would have, first of all, be part of a two-parent family, right? These days, it's even more so. But back, in, back when I was growing up, I was blessed that I was part of a two-parent family, and they instilled in me a work ethic. Is that something that I take credit for? Is that something my parents can take credit for? No, it's something that God has blessed me with. Why did I, what, what am I supposed to do with that blessing that God gave me? I'm supposed to use it to serve others, not myself. So important to keep those things in mind. The seven spiritual gifts listed here in Romans chapter 12 must be evaluated in the context of the greater development of spiritual gifts done by Paul in 1 Corinthians chapters 12 through 14. Now, we did not go through that, but if you really want to, if you want to do a study on spiritual gifts, you cannot do it without going through chapters 12 through 14 of 1 Corinthians, because that's where the, the fullest development of spiritual gifts is done. So when you consider the gifts that are mentioned here in Romans chapter 12, you have to go look at it in the context of 1 Corinthians chapters 12 through 14 to fully understand. The church age spiritual gift of prophecy was one of the in part gifts that were done away when the perfect complete thing came. 1 Corinthians 13, 8 through 10, that perfect thing is the completed canon of scripture. As was asked, a good question was asked on Wednesday night. Uh, why is it why is it phrased as a complete thing or the perfect thing? Why was it phrased that way? Because probably when Paul was given the understanding to write uh, that in First Corinthians, he didn't know exactly what that was going to be, but something perfect was going to come, and he understood what it was was a complete version of revelation. Because the in part gifts, what those were about, is partial revelation. You only had partial revelation from God. Knowledge, the gift of knowledge, the gift of that, by the way, that's different from knowledge as a spiritual gift of, of knowledge. And that would be somebody who would be able to give you some information about whatever it was. But those were partial. You only had little tidbits of information. And Paul was given the, the revelation in 1 Corinthians 13 to talk about how this complete thing was going to come. That there was going to be a complete version of revelation. He didn't know exactly what it was going to be. But it turned out to be the completed canon in the Bible that we have today. So, And there's no way you can ascribe that to Jesus Christ. It's a neuter. It doesn't talk about a person. It's talking about a thing. And so a uh, very important passage right there in 1 Corinthians 13, 8 through 10. I pointed out on Wednesday night how there's a difference between the in part or partial gifts of prophecy and knowledge and tongues. In that passage, he talks about tongues. Tongues cease. The in part gifts are done away with. But tongues cease, and the language is different for a reason. The end of the in part partial gifts was the completed canon. The ceasing of tongues came about when really they served no more purpose. The tongues were given as to be used as a warning. Used as a warning, the individuals spoke to um, spoke to people that were Jews that were part of the diaspora, and they spoke to them in the language that they now spoke because a lot of the Jews who had been dispersed no longer spoke Hebrew. And so all of these individuals who had that giftedness would go out and they would begin to proclaim warnings to the individuals that were part of the dispersion that they needed to get their act together or else you know, God's hand was going to come down upon them. They needed to believe that this guy Jesus that came, remember he is, he's actually the Messiah, he's the anointed one. And so the gift of tongues was used as a warning 
to the dispersed Jews. And it's talked about even in the, the Old Testament, the idea that that would happen. But the gift of tongues was given for that purpose after it had been done, after that warning had been issued and it was done, then there really was no more purpose for that gift. It had served its purpose. And so at that point, it ceases. And so uh, after that, really after the, the first century A.D., there's no more, no more anybody has the gift of tongues, right? All the people who had had that giftedness had died away. Did you have a question? There's no partial gifts today. No, we have the completed canon of Scripture now. We don't need a partial gift anymore. Yes? Well, so at the time, no, well, no, it's not. Prophecy is not. We often think of prophecy as predicting the future. It's not. The prophecy is the delivering of God's message to the people. Some of it, in fact, most of it when it was given, most of that when it was given was predictive of the future. A lot, if you look at how much, of the, how much of the Bible was actually predictive prophecy when it was given, it's a lot. A lot of it was. But it's not, prophecy is just the delivering of God's word. So if you look at, for example, the minor prophets, they were not predicting the future necessarily. And a lot of the minor prophets, they were giving warnings. You better do this or something bad's going to happen to you. Yeah. No, they're not prophets. We don't have prophets today. Prophecy has ceased. Prophecy has ceased. Now, if someone if someone tells you that they are a prophet, then then buyer beware. <laughs> uh, but anyway, so but there is no prophecy today because we have a completed canon. The idea of prophecy is to deliver God's word to the people, and we don't need it anymore at this point because it's all been delivered. Now prophecy comes back in the tribulation because there will be new revelation in the tribulation. There will be new information given during the tribulation. But as of right now. The time in which we live, we have the completed canon. We don't have a need for prophecy anymore. Hang on just one second. So it's very important to keep that in mind. Now, when Paul wrote this, the canon was not complete. So there were still people that were, were prophets, that had the gift of prophecy. Yes? Yeah, I suppose it's the same with you in Greece. But uh, when my brother-in-law was alive, uh, every time he would speak, he would always say the standard prophecy, but he would use it on prophetic stuff, you know. Yeah, so and you're saying, and so Jesse's saying in Spanish, this, the same word for prophecy was the word for preaching, basically. To, to prophesy was to preach. It was the exact same word. There are different words in the Greek, actually. Right. There are different words for prophecy and for uh, that person that would prophesy and that person that would preach or teach. There's different words for preaching and teaching, actually. It's all different words in the Greek. But the point of all of this is the prophets of the Old Testament and then actually the apostles who had that gift of prophecy in the New Testament that delivered God's word to the people, they were, that's all they were really doing. Was there, predictive, was there predictive content in that? You bet there was. But there was also stuff that was not predictive content. Yes. Which is why the saints are uh, so very spiritually gifted. 
Well, that's right. The idea that there's some gifts that were temporary. Some, I mean, and, and you know, if you if you think about it, you know, when I go for a, prophecy as an example, when you when you look at the tongues thing, for example, and I talked about it, it had served its purpose. If you look at the Old Testament, there were those there were individuals who were given uh, the gift of being able to build the tabernacle. They were gifted by God to be able to build the tabernacle. Now, once the tabernacle was built, do we need more gifted tabernacle builders? We don't, do we? Because the tabernacle's built. Now, I believe also, it's not mentioned specifically, but I believe when you get to the temple, when Solomon builds the temple, I believe people were gifted to do that, right? To put to build the temple itself. And But once the temple's built, I don't need gifted temple builders anymore, do I? So that's the way the, the tongues work. But see, with prophecy, what are we doing? We're delivering God's message to the people. Well, now when I look at it, and I see that the message has been delivered and is being preserved. This is the message, the 66 books. That's the message for us today. It's, it's been delivered. It's, it's been preserved by God for us. We don't need prophets today, do we? Because we've already got the message that's been delivered. Yes. That's, that's predictive prophecy. Yeah, that's... Yes. No, 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 no. It's all of its prophecy. Here's what here's what I'm trying to, to tell all of you that you need to think of in terms of the word prophecy. Prophecy is prophecy is God's word being delivered to people. Some of it is predictive of future events and some of it is not. Right. So in when you say when when we say because we just say this offhand when we say I can see prophecy, Old Testament prophecy being fulfilled today. What you're saying is I can see things that were described in the Old Testament, the word of God being delivered to the people. I can see those things being fulfilled today. That's, it was predictive at the time it was given. Much of it was predictive at the time it was given. Uh, all the day of the Lord prophecies, all those kinds of things that are going to come to fruition yet future. The problem is people, when they think of a prophet or they think of prophecy, they specifically think of the predictive stuff. But the problem is prophecy en- encompasses more than that. You see what I'm saying? Y'all tracking with me? You. Well, some of it wasn't even fulfilled. Some of it was a warning. Like, for instance, I could be a prophet and I could deliver a warning and say, you people of Israel, you are violating God's righteous standards and you need to repent. And now that, there's nothing predictive that needs to be fulfilled about that. It's a warning that's given. That, but yet that's still prophecy. Is that you tracking with me on that? And also it could be, I mean, when you look at, when you look at um, the detail, for example, the detailed description, almost a surveyor's description of what the land of Israel was going to be that was going to be given to them. I mean, literally it describes to this point on the river and over there, and it's like a surveyor describing what the land is going to be. That's just a description of what the, the land, the possession, land possession is going to be for Israel. There's nothing that has to be fulfilled in that. It's a surveyor's description of it, but that's still prophecy. Because it was God delivering his message to the people, telling the people of Israel, this is the land I'm giving you. You see what I'm saying? All of it falls into that category, right? Predictive. Yeah, but it's not. It's not. No. No. Prophecy is the giving of God's word to the people. 
Some of it refers to events that aren't going to happen until the future. Some of it has nothing to do with that. Has been penned? Well, okay, so, so that's a great, okay, that's an interesting way to put it. So was all prophecy actually written down? I don't think so. I think God recorded in the canon of Scripture exactly what he wanted to record for us, but I think there was prophecy given that was never recorded. We have evidence of that in the Bible, by the way. Prophecy that was given that was never recorded. God's word was delivered to people. The part that was preserved in the canon for us is exactly what God wanted to preserve. Does that make sense? But there was additional prophecy that was given in, in, in immediate situations that was never recorded for, for us for today. Yeah, so that's, it's God's word being delivered to the people. It's as simple as that. It's a, a, a prophet is somebody who is delivering the word of God to the people. Yeah, that's right. That's why you have so many times, especially in the Old Testament, thus says the Lord. That's what a prophet will, would, would have been doing, writing, saying, thus says the Lord. He's delivering the word of God to the people. That's exactly right. All right. However, well, that, was, that was an interesting discussion. I, I like that. However, the principle that the believer with the gift of prophecy must use that gift. Oh, this is where we left off, actually. Uh, the principle that the believer with the gift of prophecy must use that gift according to the proportion of his faith applies to all other gifts. What I want you to see in this passage, there's a bunch of things that are mentioned here. It says if you have the gift of prophecy, you should use that gift according to your faith. Well, that same thing is true of all the other gifts. If you're a giver, you're supposed to give according to your faith. If you're a shower of mercy, you're supposed to show mercy according to your faith. So what Paul has done here is he's done a very Hebrew thing that you remember he has that background, right? And he does a very Hebrew thing. He describes these different gifts and he describes these different aspects of how you're to use the gift. But all of those apply to all of the gifts. And that's very Hebrew to do that, right? So he talks about using that gift according to the proportion of your faith. But that applies to all the gifts. doesn't matter what gift you're talking about. That's a spiritual gift. No matter what spiritual gift or gifts one may have received, believers should seek to actively use their gifts in the associated ministry function. Whatever it is, right? I mean, if you have a gift of giving, you should use that gift in accordance with that function, right? In the function of giving. And by the way, giving is not just money. Giving often involves time and other things. You can do all sorts of things in terms of giving. Now, Peter outlined two main categories of spiritual gifts. Speaking gifts and serving gifts in 1 Peter 4, 10 and 11, each one of you, given that he has received a grace gift, which, by the way, all the spiritual gifts in the New Testament are referred to in that way as a grace gift. In other words, they're given by God's grace to us. Each one of you, given that he has received a grace gift, it goes on to say, serving your gift to each other as good stewards of the diverse and abundant Grace of God. If anyone speaks, do so as one who is speaking oracles of God. If anyone serves, do so as one who is serving from a position of strength, which God provides, so that in all things God may be glorified. In other words, in the use of your gift, you are not glorified. God is. So that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belongs the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. So these two categories, we have speaking and serving. Let me ask you a question. Is a speaking gift also a serving gift? Yes, it is. <laughs> That's exactly right. 
It is also a serving gift. What's the distinction? In the use or application of that gift, there's a speaking function to it, right? There's a speaking function to it. I have a speaking gift. If you are one who comes alongside, you would be someone who would actually have a speaking gift because you, as you come alongside as the paraclete, you're going to have to speak to somebody. You also may just come alongside and put your arm around them and, and not say a word, but there's a speaking aspect to it. What about an evangelist? Pretty much going to have to speak, right? But some, some of the gifts have speaking associated with them and others don't, but all of them are serving gifts, right? Because basically in verse 10, it says that you're serving your gifts up to each other. You're serving one another. And, you're, and, and the language of that Greek is interesting because it actually means I'm serving up my gift to you. That's what it actually means in 1 Peter 4.10. I'm serving up my gift to you. A believer with the spiritual gifts of service has a surpassing grace empowerment to serve in personal ministry to others and edify in the process. So service, there's a gift described as a gift of service. You have, you've been given a surpassing grace empowerment. Now what that means is, I need to be very specific about this, what that means is all of us can serve, right? All of us have the capacity to serve. But if I've been given that spiritual gift of service, I can serve in personal ministry to others in a particular way, a, a supernaturally empowered way that goes surpass, is surpassing grace empowerment to, and edifying the process. So serving in personal ministry. A believer with a spiritual gift of teaching has a surpassing grace empowerment to communicate the word of God with power. Now that's just teaching. We haven't talked about pastor-teacher side of it, but obviously the teaching aspect of a pastor-teacher would be the same. There is a teaching gift, by the way. I've, I've, known, I've, known, I've known individuals. In fact, I can, I'm thinking of one right now off the top of my head. I have no question he has a gift of teaching, but it is not the PT gift. There, he is not a shepherd. Does not, he's not a gifted shepherd. But a teacher? Yes. Absolutely. 1 Corinthians 2.13, which things we also speak not in words taught by human wisdom, but in those taught by the Spirit, combining spiritual with spiritual. You know, I... I don't like the NASB edition of the thoughts and the words because it's just combining spiritual with spiritual. And it really what it's talking about is um, the Holy Spirit and the human spirit, the connection between the Holy Spirit and the human spirit that believers, the living human spirit that believers have. First Thessalonians 1 5 says, for our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. This is, you know, what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake, the power and the Holy Spirit with full conviction. There's a power behind the Word of God. And it's the Word itself and the Holy Spirit who delivers it. A believer with the spiritual gift of paraclesis, that's the one that's hard to define paraclesis because it's encouragement. It's also rebuke and ex exhortation and so on and so forth. There's a lot. There's admonishment. There's all kinds of things that come with being a paraclete. But someone who has that spiritual gift has a surpassing grace empowerment to come alongside others. That's really what it means, to come alongside. Now, you might come alongside in encouragement. You might come alongside in exhortation. You might come alongside in other ways. But it's all part of the paraclesis gift. And the idea of ultimately, though, is to build them up in their faith. If I give somebody a rebuke just because I want to be mean to them, that's not being a paraclete, is it? If, I'm, if I come alongside and admonish someone because I want to build them up in their faith... That's a different story. Hebrews 10, 23 through 25 says, Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promises faithful. And let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, 
not forsaking our own assembling together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. So how do we stimulate one another to love and good deeds? Well, as a paraclete, you can do that by all the functions of the, the gift of paraclesis with regard to encouragement, exhortation, admonishment, rebuke, all of those things can stimulate others to love and good deeds. A believer with the spiritual gift of giving has a surpassing grace empowerment to give of themselves in abundance with exceeding joy. 2 Corinthians 8, 1 through 5. Now, brethren, we wish to make known to you the grace of God, which has been given in the churches of Macedonia, that in a great ordeal of affliction, their abundance of joy and their deep poverty. Now, I love this language of this. Let's read this and pay attention here. That in a great ordeal of affliction, their abundance of joy and their deep poverty overflowed in the wealth of their liberality. I love the language of that. Verse 3 then says, For I testify that according to their ability and beyond their ability, they gave of their own accord, begging us with much urging for the favor of participation in the support of the saints. And participation right there is the koinonia. It's the word we have for fellowship. They wanted to participate in the support of the saints. And this, not as we had expected, but they first gave themselves to the Lord and to us by the will of God. So we see that this giving goes beyond their ability to do so because it's grace empowerment from God to be able to give. Now that was a financial participation, but you can give in any way. There's all kinds of giving. A believer with the spiritual gift of leadership has a surpassing grace empowerment to take charge and provide a clear path for others to follow. Anybody can be a leader, but that person who has this gift of leadership has the ability to do so in a surpassing way. You don't think anybody can be a leader? Absolutely. We all have the capacity. Every single, gift, every single spiritual gift you see on this list, we all have the capacity as Christians to do this. But we can't do it to the extent that somebody who has this gift can do it. A believer with the spiritual gift of showing mercy has a surpassing grace empowerment to extend mercy to others with cheerfulness and to keep them from losing heart. 2 Corinthians 4.1 Therefore, since we have this ministry, as we received mercy, we do not lose heart. Now, notice that as we have received mercy, as we receive mercy, we do not lose heart. See, that, that showing of mercy to others helps keep them from losing heart, becoming discouraged. It's a big deal, right, to show mercy to others. Interestingly, um, you know, I mean, going back to the idea of the leadership and all of the different aspects of this, we, every, every one of us is, as Christians is, has a capacity to function in this way. Yes, as Christians. Yeah, when I say everyone, I'm not talking about all human beings. I'm talking about all believers. Yeah, if we go back, let's go back. Let's see, go back. A believer with the spiritual gift of leadership, right? But all believers have the capacity to lead. Yeah, no, all believers have the capacity to lead. We've got, we've got people that are serving in the role of leaders in our own country that are not very good leaders, but that's another story. For our spiritual gifts to properly function in these various ministries, they must be exercised in love. You will hear that from this pulpit all the time. Love is critical. The operational sphere of love is what I like to call it. 1 Corinthians 8, 1. Now concerning things sacrificed to idols, we know that we have all knowledge. Knowledge makes arrogant, but love edifies. Is knowledge important? Yes. Did Paul emphasize the importance of knowledge? Yes. 
over and over and over again. What is he emphasizing here? If that's all you have is knowledge, but you don't have love, then you're going to get puffed up. You're going to, that's the language of the old, uh, the old uh, King James, I think, is puffed up. Knowledge puffs up, but love edifies. But the idea is love edifies. Love is, love is what makes it effective. The operational sphere of love, 1 Corinthians 13, this is uh, the love passage here as we get into this. Uh, 1 Corinthians 13, 1 through 8, If I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but do not have love, I have become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. By the way, what is a tongue? What is a glossa from the Greek? What is a tongue? It's a language, right? We have this idea in the, in the, the tongues movement of today, we have this idea that tongues is some sort of gibberish that people are spewing out. No, tongues is language. That's what that word means in the Greek. It means a language. What's the language of angels? Actually, if I look at it's interesting. When, if somebody tells you, oh, I speak in tongues, and you say, well, that doesn't sound like a, a, you know, a language to me. And they, they might say, I'm serious. You will have this. They will say, oh, but it's, this is, I'm speaking in the tongues of angels. And they get it from this, this verse. I'm speaking in the tongues of angels. If they ever do that, here's what you ought to say. Well, interestingly, when I look at my Bible, when the angel spoke to Daniel, he spoke in Hebrew. So you speak in Hebrew? Is that supposed to be Hebrew? Or whatever, right? In other words, when angels spoke to men, what did they do? They spoke in a language they could understand, right? So it's not some mystical language that nobody gets. Angels would speak in languages that people could understand. So if somebody says they speak in tongues of angels and say, okay, well, what, what human language is it? Because the angels always spoke in a human language, right? Yes. Yeah, you don't see anybody who has the gift of interpretation, which is interesting because those go hand in hand. You can't have the gift of tongues without the gift of interpretation. But, I mean, that gift's not active today anyway, the gift of tongues. Neither one of those are active gifts anymore today. Like I said, they served their purpose back in the first century, and it's, that's over with. That's gone. Um, so nobody speaks in tongues today. That's gift, a gift from God, not, not with a gift of, from God. There might be some other spirit involved, but it's not the... It's not the Holy Spirit. Yeah, it might be. If I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and all knowledge, notice what we have these listed here, and know all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faiths so as to remove mountains but do not have love, I am nothing. It goes on to say, and if I give all my possessions to feed the poor, and if I surrender my body to be burned and do not have love, it profits me nothing. This is the lead-in, the context for this love passage that you hear at every wedding you've probably ever been to. Um, this is the context of it, and it's in the context of 1 Corinthians uh, 12 through 14, which is all about gift, giftedness, spiritual gifts. We have love is patient, love is kind, and is not jealous. Love does not brag and is not arrogant, does not act unbecomingly, it does not seek its own, is not provoked, does not take into account a wrong suffered, but does, uh, excuse me, does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth. That's so important. All these people that talk about love is love, and yet what they're doing is they're rejoicing in unrighteousness. That's not, that's not the right kind of love, is it? You know what I mean? That's not the right kind of love. If you're, if you're reveling in unrighteous behavior, that is not this kind of love. It says uh, love does not rejoice in unrighteousness. This is agape love. Does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth. Bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. And then that's when it goes into, but if there are gifts of prophecy, they will be done away. If there are tongues, they will cease. If there's knowledge, and that's the gift of knowledge, uh, it will be done away. So uh, it goes on to talk about knowing in part and prophesying in part. And we looked at that before. But the whole idea of all of this is that's, that's the passage. 
If somebody tells you that tongues are still active today, then ask them when they're going to cease because they're going to cease during the church age, sometime during the church age. If they haven't ceased yet, when is that going to happen? Find out what they say about that. All right. Let's see. Do we want to dive into this? Overcome evil with good. You know what we'll do? We'll read this and we'll get just, just barely started on this. Overcoming evil with good, chapter 12, verses 9 through 21. Love should be without any hypocrisy. Abhor what is evil, cling closely to what is good, be devoted to one another in brotherly love, excel in showing honor to one another, not holding back in your diligence, enthusiastic in spirit, serving the Lord, rejoicing in hope, persevering in tribulation, consistent in prayer, contributing to the needs of the saints, pursuing hospitality. Bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse, rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Be of the same mind toward one another. Do not be haughty in mind. This is that other warning we were talking about earlier. Do not be haughty in mind, but instead associate with the lowly. Stop being wise in your own estimation. Never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Respect what is right in the judgment of all people. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live in peace with all people. Never take justice into your own hands, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God. For it is written... Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Now, this is an interesting, you've got, to, you've got to keep in mind what we just were reading. Don't take judgment into your own hands. Let, let God take care of it. So when we get to this passage, you have to keep that in mind. But if your enemy is hungry, feed him. And if he's thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Now, everybody that I know of that hears that, they think, okay, I'm going to heap burning coals on their head. I'm going to, I'm going to harm them. By doing this to them, I'm going to bring harm to them. I think we just read in this passage that we're not supposed to be doing that. So you have to understand this in a different way, and we'll get to that. Stop being overcome by evil, but instead overcome evil with that which is good. All right, I think, I think we might stop and not go into the next section. But going back to this, I'll talk to this just for a minute. We, when we were going through this verse by verse, we got to this section. For in so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. And basically what we talked about is we talked about a, a tradition, uh, a behavior that was done in the past that involved coals, putting coals on the head and so on and so forth. And it had to do with repentance. It was not by heaping burning coals on their head, I was going to make them miserable. I was going to make them suffer. Because the whole context of this passage is I'm not supposed to do that. God's going to take care of punishing whoever it is that's doing wrong. So it says, but if your enemy is hungry, feed him. And if he's thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. What, you're actually, what it's actually talking about is you're going you're gonna to be able to lead this person to repentance. Right? This is your enemy. This is somebody who's seeking to do you harm. And instead of you doing them harm, this passage is saying what you need to do is you need to feed them. If they're hungry, if they're thirsty, give them a drink. In so doing, you're going you're gonna to lead them to repentance. Now, it may not happen right away. Right. If you haven't noticed, it may not happen right away, but the idea is you are planting seeds that will lead eventually to the repentance of that individual. That's the idea of this passage. And so we'll come back and we'll talk about it next time. And I never understood it that way until I studied this verse by verse. That's one of the benefits of going through books verse by verse is you get to this. And for the first time, for the first time, I was reading this in the context of the passage itself and seeing, oh, wait a minute, this whole passage is about don't. Take vengeance of your own. Leave the judgment up to God. And so this could not be talking about me trying to do something that's going to harm my enemy. 
It's talking about something that's going to bring my enemy to a place of maybe repenting and realizing that they need to walk in a different way. Yes. Well, I mean, you say killing them with kindness. I mean, I think the problem with that phrase, I hear that phrase all the time. The problem with that is I think most people who say that, I'm not saying that that's what the expression was meant to be, but most people who say that, they want to bring harm on the individual. Or I'm going to be kind to them and it's going to make them feel awful. right? It's going to, it's, they're going to be miserable because I'm being kind to them. The idea here is not that you're going to make them feel awful. Maybe, maybe there will be some sorrow involved realizing they're being mean to you and you're not being mean back or something. But I see what you're saying. You're making that connection. But I think most people don't say it that way. And in fact, I think most people who quote this verse don't say it the right way. They say it in terms of trying to bring harm to the other person, and that's not really what it's about. It's, it took some study to figure that out when we were looking at this verse by verse. Well, we'll stop right there, and we'll come back, and we'll pick up here um, with the principles. We'll go back and reread the verses and then pick up with the principles for verses 9 through 21. On Wednesday night, Lord willing, let's go ahead and close in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for our time of study this morning. Thank you for the richness of your word, the many things that we can get out of it. We went back this morning and reviewed what we had talked about on Wednesday night, and yet we had a different discussion this morning, and it was rich. It was a blessing. There was much that came out of that discussion, and I thank you for it. So uh, it's amazing. Every time we go back and we look at these verses and we talk about these verses, uh, there's more that can be learned, and that's just the amazing thing about your word. It never ceases to teach us. It never ceases to help us to grow. And I thank you for this opportunity to study these passages, these verses this morning. I thank you for the opportunity to discuss the things regarding the uh, gift of prophecy and so on with regard to the spiritual gifts, the temporary gifts, the permanent gifts. It's important to have an understanding about these things because your word says that there are certain gifts that are temporary. And so the question is, when do they when are they done away? When do they cease? And uh, it has to be sometime during this stewardship, during this dispensation of the church, because when the rapture comes, this stewardship is over, and those spiritual gifts are not valid anymore anyway. So it has to be during this, this stewardship. And uh, I understand, and, and uh, from my studies, I am, it's clear in my mind that uh, many of the gifts have already ceased and have been done away. So we have a a list of gifts that still are active today and a list of gifts that are no longer in place. And I thank you for the understanding that we can have as we look at your word. I thank you for the ability to cover these things this morning. I pray that we can chew on these things and have a greater understanding as a result of this opportunity to study. We pray all of these things in Jesus Christ's most precious and holy name. Amen.